Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Because there are a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day who love the Sabbath more than they love people, who love the law more than they love people, who love the temple more than they love people. And you want to know what? The Sabbath was temporal. The temple was temporal. The feast, the festivals, all of that were, all those were temporal. The people are eternal. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Our Healing and Forgiving Lord. We're in John chapter five, and we'll take up today in verse nine, and we'll study through the end of this chapter. Now we're considering the religious leaders of Jesus's day and their response to Jesus's healing on the Sabbath, Jesus's authority, and Jesus's testimony. So let's listen in. The impossible became possible, and the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. If there were music to this, it would go dun, 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 dun. Because that, those words are ominous. Because there are a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day who love the Sabbath more than they love people, who love the law more than they love people, who love the temple more than they love people. And you want to know what? The Sabbath was temporal. The temple was temporal. The feast, the festivals, all of that were, all those were temporal. The people are eternal. And they're more concerned with process and, and making sure people submit to their idea of what God might have meant when he said to keep the Sabbath holy. Not to work on it, to, to rest on it. The Sabbath was made for man. To give him rest, lest he weary himself to death and work himself to death. So there could be a day of worship and family and fellowship. So anyway, the Jews therefore said, and he's talking here about the Jews who were religious leaders. There are others around always. They said to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Imagine being there, seeing this miracle, seeing the guy walking and carrying his bed, and you see these religious leaders, and they're like, hey, you, you're breaking the law. It may have been true in their minds, but he wasn't breaking God's law because Jesus would never command them to do something like that. No, he wasn't breaking God's law. He was just breaking their interpretation and understanding of what working might have entailed in apparently moving your bed and carrying it through the streets on the Sabbath, well, that was considered work to them. I want to say they're right about one thing. Carrying your bed is work. I don't know how big his was. I don't want to carry my bed on any day. But I wouldn't want to be accused of violating some law of God or principle of God because I did something that God told me to do. And that's what's happening here. They said, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Listen, for 38 years, carrying his bed was an impossibility. And for the first time in 38 years, he could actually do so. And that's one, not the only reason, but one reason Jesus said, rise up and take your bed and walk. He is a living witness of what Jesus can do. When somebody just believes him and obeys him. But conflict always arises when God's at work. And that's what happens here. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they said to him, 
Who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made whole. You've been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Now, we aren't told that there was something sinful that led to his malady, but that's possible. In John 9, when we get there, there's a man born blind. The disciples will ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They equated suffering and disease and all of the things that go with it with someone's sin. Well, I want to say, were there no sin, there would be no suffering, there'd be no disease and such, but it's not always your sin, and it's not always your parents' sin. Sin's in the world. And so people suffer because sin's in the world. The day is coming, and we read it recently, latter part of Revelation, when there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more sorrow and no more uh, death. For the former things will have passed away. But we're living in the season where sin abounds and suffering abounds. But what could be worse? And that's the question we should be asking. What could be worse than 38 years of suffering as he had? You know what comes to mind? And that is dying in his sins without faith in Jesus. Because the afterlife apart from Jesus, it's horrific. It's unimaginable, though the Bible has a lot to say about it. Do you know Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven? He promised heaven, and he warned people about hell. And so anyway, this guy is, is told, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. And will we be wise to take that to heart? If God's freed us, if he's healed us, if he's made us whole, if he's given us sight spiritually or physically, if he's given us hearing and if he's softened and changed our hearts, given us the new heart promised to us in him. He's saying, don't go back to that life of sin. Well, the man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Imagine that. What's he guilty of? He healed a guy they couldn't have healed and wouldn't have healed, even if they could have, at least not on the Sabbath, because they loved the Sabbath more than they loved the suffering people. Well, Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. I love where he goes with this because they're like, okay, he broke the Sabbath. We're going to have to take him out. And he says, hey, let's talk about my father, because this is going to be even more devastating to them, more infuriating. But Jesus, like John the Baptist, is absolutely fearless. And he wants to confront things head on. So he brings up his father. The Jews, therefore, just hearing him say, my father's been working until now, and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, their understanding of it, never God's intention for it, since he's God the Son and was in on it, and is the fulfillment of it, our rest in him. He is our Sabbath. But anyway, but also it says that God was his father, making himself, don't miss this, equal with God. He couldn't be equal with God unless he was God. And of course, he's not God the Father, nor is he God the Spirit. That's why he says the Father must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He's spirit. 
And the Spirit of God doesn't come to be worshipped. He comes to testify of Jesus so we can be saved and find our way back to the Father. But Jesus is worthy of our worship, and, and he is one with the Father in so many different ways. It's said in the scriptures. He is the exact representation of the Father, the express image of the Father, we're told in Hebrews. And we'll see again and again, even in John, such radical declarations. Well, this is the only time Jesus uses the word his Father in John's gospel, but he says the Father 71 times in John. And uh, 63, or the words the Father appear 71 times, 63 of them, Jesus is the one using them. So he, he speaks of his Father, he speaks of the Father, and 40 times in John, he'll say, my Father. So they're going to be upset that he's making himself equal with the Father, but he's going to double down, not back off. Some had made up their minds. There were others who hadn't. This is why he doubles down. This is why he presses in. Because those who made up their minds, well, you're not going to change them. But so many people were unsure. Could he be the Christ? That Samaritan woman said. And then they went out and heard him. And then they believed in him. And they said, now we believe, not just because of what you said, but we believe because we've heard him ourselves. Well, Jesus answered them and said to them, most assuredly, verse 19, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. Whatever he does, the son also does. Listen, in like manner. He doesn't just do what the father does. He does it the same way the father would. So he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. See how I forgive? That's the Father. That's how He forgives. You see how I love? That's the Father. That's how He loves. You see how I deal with injustice? That's the Father. That's how He deals. And you could fill in the blanks. If you've seen how Jesus does it, well, He's doing it in like manner as the Father does it. And so He goes on to say, For the Father loves the Son, verse 20, and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. He said, we're both raising the dead, but the Father's left judgment to me. And when we get to the end of this, He says, I'm going to let somebody else take care of that even. And you'll be surprised too. He who does not honor the Son, He says, oh, that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them, him. Now, to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. To woman at the well, he said, you must worship in spirit. Uh, excuse me. Uh, you must worship in spirit and in truth. And so now uh, to us today, he says, <clears throat> as he's speaking to them, he's speaking to us. <clears throat> excuse me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. That's you. If you have his word and you believe the father sent him, you believe he's the son of God and God the son, you believe he died for your sins, was buried and rose again, you believe into him and unto him. Listen, he says you have everlasting life. It's your present possession It'll never be taken from you. It's the gift of everlasting life. And he says, and shall not come into judgment, 
but has passed from death into life. The one who hears, who believes, has everlasting life. Christians should be the most secure and sure people on the planet. And God gave me some insight not that long ago in a conversation with someone who was absolutely certain that I'm wrong about all these things. And I thought, you know, there have been seasons, few, but there have been seasons where I've had personal doubts. Oh, not about God's integrity or his honesty or his faithfulness, just about me personally. And if you've never had any doubts, you might want to do some soul searching. But, but that's why he keeps telling us, this isn't on you, it's on me. If you've trusted in me, you have everlasting life. So whatever doubts we may have, here's what the Lord showed me. How much greater the doubt they should have. And I don't mean that in like, you know, in a demeaning way. I mean, they must stay up at night and wonder, what if it's all true? And by they, I might mean you. If you're here and you've never given your life to the Lord, he who has the son has life. Who is not the son of God does not have life. That means you're dead in trespasses and sin. And you're here, whatever drew you, you're here because God's drawn you. Whatever you think brought you, he brought you because he wants you to hear the truth. And he's asking you, do you want to be made whole? And if your answer is, well, ah, that's impossible, then he can command you to believe today. And, and do the impossible, trust in him today. And he'll make that possible as he does. Well, anyway, he goes on to say, most assuredly, verse 25, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He's talking about two kinds of dead, those dead in trespasses and sin and those who are physically dead. But he's dealing first with those dead in trespasses and sin. How do I know? Because there was opportunity for them to come to him and find life in him. He says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son to have life in himself. He's given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, he passes from the living who were dead in trespasses and sin to the dead who were, well, some die in faith, others have died without him. And he says to the resurrection, the hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Listen, first time I read that and understood it or thought I did, it freaked me out completely because I, I would like so many people had that idea that that somehow I played a bigger part in this than I've learned that I actually do. But but, you know, there's the, the evil we've done and there's the good we've done. And and the Jewish mindset was and remains to this day. You need to balance out the good so that, you know, the evil isn't greater than the good so that that, you know, you're doing this thing, trying to balance the scales. But the truth is. The good he's talking about is believing in him. Because when they come and say, what must we do to do the works of God? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe on Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That's not even you. That's, even, that's his work. It's his will. He empowers it, but you have to decide it. So, so he, he's saying there's going to be a resurrection and everyone's going to be resurrected. 
Those who've done good by trusting in him. Yeah, there's good things we can do. But listen, unbelievers can do good things too. But none can do this good, not the good enough for the resurrection of life. And then those who've done evil, and he's talking about a lifestyle, unrepentant sinners, unrepentant sinners. The repentant sinners are those he puts in the category of, okay, now your works are acceptable. You're doing good. It's acceptable to me. The, the resurrection of condemnation, that are, those are those who continue in their sin doing evil. And he says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge. My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So all will be resurrected. All will stand before the Lord. I heard Greg Laurie say the other night, I was watching a crusade uh, with Pam, and, and uh, we, we attended his services when we were first saved. And I went to high school with him. He was younger than me, but way smarter than me. And by that, I mean he came to the Lord as a teenager, and I came to the Lord at 27. So he had about 10 years on me when I came to the Lord. But I heard him say, you know, all roads actually do lead to God. Because you hear that, right? All roads lead to God. And, and then there's like, <gasps> you know, and, and he, here's what he meant by it, and, and here's why it's true. No matter what road you're walking, someday you're going to stand before God. You're either going to stand before him here, well done, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you before the world began. Or you're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But everyone ultimately stands at the throne of God and is either welcomed in or told to depart. So in that way, we can say whatever road you're traveling, it will someday lead you to his presence. But you want to hear, well done, you want to hear good and faithful servant. You want to hear enter into the joy of the Lord. And certainly you don't want to hear, I never knew you, depart from me. Well, they required witnesses. And, and, and elsewhere in the other gospel accounts, they came saying, hey, well, you know, you can't just testify of yourself. And Jesus gives us four witnesses to conclude this chapter. And I'll read through them. We have a short clip for you. We'll worship one more time together. The four witnesses, though, that, that he shares, um, John the Baptist, Jesus works, the Father, and the Scriptures. First, John the Baptist. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. That's a weird statement coming from the one who always told the truth and is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not saying it's untrue. What he's saying is it's insufficient. Why? He's talking to people under the law. And they knew the law said in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything must be established. And so he says, I, I understand. If I'm my only witness, it's, un, it's, un, un, it's not untrue, but insufficient. I don't know why it's so hard to get that word out. It's not enough. If he then says, there's another who bears witness of me. I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You've sent to John and he's borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. You were willing to, for a time to rejoice in his light. How did John witness to Jesus, he told everyone who came for baptism to repent until Jesus came out into the water. 
And he said, I should be being baptized by you. He's the only one that John didn't call to repentance because he knew Jesus was more righteous than he. The only sinless man. And so he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did he come to believe that? The Father told him, the one upon whom the Spirit descends and remains, he will be the one. And then we go to the second witness and they worked perfectly together because he goes on to say, I have a greater witness, verse 36, than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Already shared, he's doing what the Father sent him to do, anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, liberty to those oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he says the Father himself. The Father who tells John, here's how you'll know he's the one, so you can say, behold the Lamb of God. The Father spoke at that same baptism of Jesus and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, he says, for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. John the Baptist, Jesus works, the Father, and the scriptures all testify of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what that means and what we're to do about it. I do not receive honor from men, he says in verse 41, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. Early in John, he came unto his own and his own received him not. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. John will later speak of many antichrists going out into the world. And then the one antichrist of the last days, tribulation. It's a promise that that's going to happen. And he says, I'm here in my father's name. You're rejecting me. Another's coming in his own name. Him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. They loved the law, but the law couldn't love them back. The law condemns, but Jesus gives life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his, but you, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Listen, we started with this. Heal me and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are my praise. Psalm 103, 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction and crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. So why did the religious leaders of Jesus's day have more love for temporal things, like the Sabbath, the rituals, and the temple, than they did people whom they were supposed to be loving? 
In John 8:44, Jesus proclaimed that these same religious leaders were of their father, the devil, saying to them, the desires of your father are that which you want to do. Ouch. But to answer the love question, these people's love was for themselves. They loved the Sabbath, the rituals, and the temple because they benefited directly from these things, things that God had given his people to point them to himself. I believe that the religious leaders wanted to be the ones to whom these things pointed to. They wanted the very worship that belonged to God. They wanted what their father the devil wanted and desired. And it was the love of self that led the devil to his fall, just as the love of self will lead to the fall of a man. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.